What's going on, folks? Thanks for hitting that download button and checking out a brand new episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, your one-stop shop for toys, tech, and talk with some assembly required. I'm your host, Rich, and if this is your first time checking out an episode, first of all, welcome. Second, a bit about what we do here. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and just awesome folks that are on our radar and discuss the gadgets, the gear, and the tech that they use to create their content, run their business, and most importantly, be more productive. When it comes to toys, we go beyond action figures, Funko Pops, and the usual things that fall in the toys category and discuss other things that people um, enjoy, collect, and obsess over and that they consider their toys, whether it's something as simple as guitar picks or uh, toothpicks, different spoons. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. And we embrace those types of interests here with a lot of enthusiasm because, again, not all of us have the same interests and what some person may consider their toys, others may not. And most importantly, it allows us to learn a little bit more about our guests on a personal level and break up some of the business and entrepreneur talk that we have on our shows. Now, with that intro out of the way, let's get some housekeeping done and turn it over to this week's guest. Uh, The only bit of housekeeping of note to kick things off that I want to remind everybody about is that you may notice things get a little weird when you're downloading episodes, whether for this show or other shows on the network. And it is because we are changing podcast hosts. We are moving away from speaker, uh, excuse me, from Spreaker to podcast.co, a company based in the UK that has a very, a very awesome system. And most importantly, allows people that are on the network with us, whether it's our other hosts, myself, or someone who's managing the accounts to see analytics and be able to share them very, very quickly versus the current way where I have to go through each show, pull up the analytics individually, and then forward them to our hosts. I want to put more control and transparency in the hands of our hosts, and Podcast CO allows me to do that. Now, Spreaker is a great service, and if you're looking to start a network or build out a network, Spreaker is a great partner. They ended up replacing Libsyn, who was pretty much the partner for my take radio in terms of podcast hosting for many, 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 many years. And I got to say, I co-sign Libsyn uh, greatly because they not only allow people to get up and running with their podcast very quickly, but they take a lot of the heavy lifting out of the equation. Submitting your shows to iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, etc. They got you covered. Nice way to have show notes, piece of cake. You want a dedicated website for your podcast? They can do that too. Libsyn is great, doesn't cost a lot, doesn't break the bank. But if you're trying to start a network and you're not somebody with a massive, massive, massive audience, it's a little bit more cumbersome. You got to create individual accounts for your shows, etc. Um, but again, each service has their place. Libsyn was phenomenal. Spreaker was great, but podcast.co not only was very compelling, but they also just took a lot of time to walk us through. We did a demo. Mind you, their team is based out of the UK for the most part, and they were incredibly accommodating. Uh, We've been doing the trial thus far, very impressed with the amount of service and detail that they're providing us, and we look forward to a long and prosperous relationship with them. But I wanted to share that with all of you because, again, it will affect uh, the RSS feeds for some of the shows, 
and a couple of other little bugs that we are currently working on. So I wanted to share that with you to ensure that, you know, we are aware of what's going on. And if you run into any problems, do not hesitate to shoot me an email, rich at rageworks.net or hit me up via any of the social channels for Rageworks or the Rageworks podcast network. All right. That housekeeping is is pretty much it for this episode. Uh, this week's guest, um, very interesting, uh, reached out to me directly through LinkedIn. LinkedIn has become an incredible resource to uh, get guests for Toys and Tech of the Trade um, alongside some of the other services that we used. Uh, this individual comes from the automotive space, uh, disrupted the space with his unique idea, which I'm going to let him share with you. Um, had his company acquired, made a killing, now looking to disrupt the automotive refinancing space. Now, you're probably asking yourself, I can refinance my car? How the hell do I do that? Well, this week's guest is going to break that down. But the short version, which I'll share with you, is that if you have a car loan and maybe you took that loan out and your credit wasn't good and then your credit got better and you're still paying through the nose for that car note and high interest rates, you are able to refinance that loan and not only save money, but definitely just get a better break when it comes to a vehicle. So you might lower the interest rate. You might get some more money in your pocket versus the current payment you have. All of that and much more is broken down by this week's guest. But you don't need to hear it from me. Let's turn it over to this week's guest and learn about the toys and tech of their trade. My guest for this week's episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade introduced himself kind of the same way that Tony Stark introduced himself to Captain America by saying that he was a genius, billionaire, playboy, and philanthropist. My guest this week introduced himself by saying that he was an investor, a CEO and co-founder, and a golfer of all things. My guest this week, Nicholas Henriksen. Nick, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I um. I when you when you and I connected on LinkedIn, it was interesting because did a little a little digging, and before we started recording, we realized that we were in a similar space. But your story is unique because you are part of a group of individuals that are disrupting, in this case, the automotive industry with your approach to business. And I want to get into that a little bit, but I want to kind of unpack your origin story first. Uh, you were explaining to me when you introduced yourself, you were a golfer, you were on the German golf national team, um, you went to Stanford Business School. So I want to kind of start there. How sure. did you, how, how does, how does someone go from being in the German golf national team to, um, Stanford Business School, then Y Combinator, et cetera? Let's kind of start there. Yeah. The better question would be how do you even get into playing golf in the first time? <laughs> well, you know, it's um, it, it's funny. I was gonna I was gonna ask that, but more and more people are embracing that sport nowadays. So it's it's an interesting it's an interesting uh, way to approach it because some people are really into it, especially uh, younger people that are seeing it as you know a means to an end and trying to become a personality in the sport. Yeah, yeah, that was not my intention. But what I ended up doing is I, I actually so I'm from Germany originally. Soccer is big in Germany. So I played soccer for, for many years as a kid. 
and then we went skiing and I broke my leg. I, I hit a fence and I wasn't allowed to play soccer for half a year. Wow. And so I got bored and then we, my parents are from Argentina originally. So we visited our family in Argentina and while everybody was running around, hiking, climbing mountains, riding on horses, I wasn't allowed to do any of that. And so I just went to the golf course next door and started hitting balls in the driving range. And, and then I really started enjoying it. I, 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 they gave me a handicap, like I just got it on the spot, which made no sense, but I got it. And then when I came back to Germany and I started playing these little tournaments, I started improving the handicap and I was winning all these net prizes. And so I got hooked. Like I just loved the fact that I was winning little prizes uh, and could improve and could see this handicap go down. And then when I was 13 or so, I thought I was good. And somebody from my club told me, hey, come with us. We're going to this little summer camp and the trainers of the state state team are going to be there. And so you can meet them. And their first piece of feedback were, yeah, you're you're really talented, but you're really not a good golfer yet. Oh, and geez. so that, that really motivated me to try harder. And then uh, it took me a year to got on the Bavarian team. And then two years later, I was when I was 16, I went to the I, I joined the, the national team. And then I did that for four years. Did you have any aspirations of going pro at the time based on your your improvements and being on the national team? Was that ever in the back of your mind or something you considered? Yeah, good question. So there were like five moments or so when I thought I'm good until I met better ones. And then I always realized I'm so far away from, from the top. Um, I'm really tall. I'm 6'4". And so I hit the ball very far. And that, that's obviously a huge help. But I, I never got the short game to be in a place that was good enough to compete on that really high level. And then, frankly, I ran a little bit out of patience in the end. Uh, and and going to college and studying computer science and finance felt a little bit more interesting. So I didn't pursue becoming a golf pro. A few of my friends did. In fact, Martin Kamer, you, you would know him because he's been very good. Um, he and I, we shared rooms in, in hotels over the winters and in our training camps. Now, doing doing that, and now obviously you mentioned that you uh, took it towards going to college, and then when you got to college, you went into computer science. Did you put golf on the back burner? Were you still playing it for recreation at the time, or were you just more yeah, in your I, studies? I played recreationally, so I I had to leave. This was a, a mutual decision. I left the national team because I didn't want to pursue it professionally, and and like that the team and the coaches and all the stakeholders obviously asked, so what's the next step? Do you want to become pro and we'll support you? So that, that was a logical decision. Um, I did continue playing for another four years or five years for the team that I played. So in, in, in Germany, it's slightly different than, than in the U S so and the U S you play on the, on the college team, I guess Yep. in Germany, it's more, it's organizing clubs. And so I played for my club and I played for the club team and those, those, now, looking back, are my best friends in Germany still. Now, you are also, when it comes to studies, extremely well-traveled. You said you um, had computer science and finance when you were in Germany, but you also went to school in Chile as well. Yeah, so when a lot of my friends who play golf with me did, they, they went to a public university. Those universities are really good in Germany and, and they're for free. And so as a result, a lot of people, who, a lot of my friends who decided to not pursue golf professionally ended up continuing to play a lot. And so they never draw a strict line in the sand and, and made that strict decision. 
I didn't want that. And so I wanted to keep myself accountable. Instead of going to a public university, I went to a private university, which there aren't a lot in Germany. But the benefit of that program was that it was a four-year program and you'd spend one year abroad. And uh, out of the one year abroad, I spent half a year in Sydney, in Australia, and half a year in Vinalma in Chile. And I chose Chile because I wanted to go to a Spanish-speaking country. I felt Spain was too close, so I wanted an adventure. Argentina would have been really fun, but my cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents lived in Argentina. And so had I gone there, I would have hung out with them, I would have spoken German all the time. Right. And so that's why I chose Chile. Nice. And then you also went to the University of Sydney as well. Was that part of the same program? Exactly, yeah. So Chile was an organ... Yeah, actually, yeah, Chile was a school that partnered with ours, and then in Sydney, I, I just chose a school that didn't partner with us, but that offered an exchange program. Uh, two very fun but very different experiences. In, in Chile, I'm not sure whether you've been, but what you do a lot is travel, like the countryside and the countries, uh, and all these adventures are incredibly fun and, and pretty. So you travel from one country to the next, and from one adventure to the next. Wow. Sydney is different because Sydney is a big city. And so there we embraced city life, which was really fun too. Now, these these unique uh, experiences in education, um, you know, you went to Stanford Business School, uh, you got your MBA there. Now, how did you what kind of a shift was there in terms of just academics for you when you were learning in these uh, unique and uh, unique international environments versus just coming into Stanford university where it's, you know, work, 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 so to speak. And the, the end game in your case, the MBA is the sole focus while you're there. How was it in terms of just uh, culture shock and education shock? Well, I, I'm, I'm going to shock you because it's actually slightly different. In, in undergrad, I studied a lot, lot, lot. I worked a lot. The time of the, the program in Germany is very compressed. So I really only spent three years in school in Germany and basically got a, the equivalent of a master's degree. Wow. Um, so that was a lot of work. In Chile, I had to study in Spanish and like I speak Spanish because my parents speak Spanish. But I don't think that I could negotiate and, and, and talk about finance and complicated topics in Spanish. So that was not a truly academic experience. Sydney was a little bit because I did a lot of finance classes. And then lastly, the MBA. I moved to the U.S. in 2011 to pursue the MBA. It's incredibly hard to get into Stanford. Frankly, you just need to be a little bit lucky too. Uh, I, in comparison to a lot of my classmates, I wonder why they let me in at all. Um, but then once you're in, the MBA is, is for somebody who had studied business before, less so, less of academic experience and more uh, an experience of of learning like very particular skills and making a lot of friends who are like-minded uh, and then ultimately almost a social experience. So in my case, other business classes, I, I had taken some of those already in undergrad and instead I could I could focus a lot of my classes on design, design thinking, entrepreneurship, and venture capital. And so this is very tactical. It was very tactical for what, what I wanted to pursue and do after. Academically, it's not that hard. It's harder to get in than to pass. Right. But instead, you have, you have like, the opportunity to meet all these incredibly interesting spe- people. And so looking back, that's primarily what I got out of the program, and I would do it, I would do it again if I could. Well, I mean, your your time at Stanford was in, incredibly um, 
it, it it was incredibly successful. I mean, that's where you met uh Chris Coleman, your your co-founder for your like venture, yeah. where we're which we're gonna get into. So tell me a little bit how how you met Chris and the the origin of of Carlipso and why you both decided that that was the direction you wanted to go into. Yeah, so I I've never been particularly fascinated about cars. I I, I drive them. I drive them fast in Germany on the highway and the motorbahn and the autobahn, but. Um, like cars was, wasn't a thing I was particularly interested in. Different from Chris, Chris is obsessed with cars. Like he's a huge car nut. His first car was a DeLorean, the one from the back, from Back to the Future. You know? Wow, that's pretty cool. You know? Yeah, that was his first car. He he had a set set budget from his parents for his first car, and his parents thought he'll use it on something like that's responsible and like a car that's in good condition. Instead, he used the budget to buy the coolest car that was wrecked so he couldn't get it cheap. And so he bought a wrecked DeLorean and spent two years uh, fixing it with his dad before he could drive it. Wow. Uh, so yeah, he, he loved cars. Um, and then so, since he loved cars, he also wanted to pursue a career in path, uh, career path in, in, in cars. And what he ended up doing between, between the first and second year of business school, he, he, he did an internship with McLaren, the Formula One company in the UK, thinking that that would be his dream job because his dream role was to work for a Formula One company. But then what he realized is, while the product is incredible, like the business of building cars is, is, is not as exciting. Right. And so instead of, going, instead of going back, he actually ended up signing an offer with a private equity fund. And then everything happened because everybody, like all our classmates knew that car was the exp- Chris was the expert to go to about car questions. Right, and while he and I spent a lot of time together thinking about what could you do entrepreneurially after after business school, all of a sudden all the classmates approached us and asked us if we could sell their cars for them. <laughs> and so first we said no, and thought that's ridiculous. But then quickly we found ourselves selling fifty, sixty, seventy cars on Craigslist on behalf of our classmates. Now, in terms of in terms of approaching it that way, they were you. Were your classmates giving you any sort of a of a payment and then saying, "Hey, just sell my car. This is what I want to get and take your cut?" Yeah, it was like we obviously we did do it for free. Although some some of our classmates just assumed it was for free, and then we had difficult conversations. <laughs> of course. Person. No, we classmates approached us. We laughed. They're like, "No, I'm actually serious. Can you sell my car for me?" We jokingly said, "Well, if you pay me for it." And then they said, sure, how much do you want? And so we asked ourselves, like, we, we had to think about pricing. It had to be enough to make it worthwhile, but it, it couldn't have been too much. Otherwise, you just end up being a car dealership. Right. And so I think our pricing model was a minimum of $500 or 5% of the purchase price. That's the price we chose. The, the problem, the like, what we ha- ended up doing is we, we started selling cars. We found this really interesting way of selling cars where we didn't have to be there in person because we end up spending a lot of time on test drives. And so we, we created the experience, a zip card-like experience where you can swipe your ID, get access to the car, drive it, and then just go to the bank and pay for it. Wow. We we raised $1.2 million from professors and lecturers and early-stage investors, went through Y Combinator, which is one of the most uh, well-known startup accelerator programs, raised another 800000 but ended up changing the model because if you if you help a private person sell his car or her car to another private person, 
you'll find that the seller always thinks the cars are worth more than they are. Of course. Like people people are in love. Some people name their cars. So it's, it's actually really emotional. And then buyers who buy from private parties are so price sensitive, they'll just haggle forever. And so every time we, we made a deal happen, it felt like we were disappointing both of our customers. Hmm. Interesting. Now, how did you, how did you learn to balance that to where both sides of both sides of the deal would come away a little bit more satisfied? Plus you would have a little, you would feel, you personally would feel some sense of fulfillment. (laughs) Yeah. But the latter was what, what in the end drove us to rethink what we were doing. We, that model, that, that market doesn't quite work. And so what we ended up doing is we, we removed all the private sellers. So we walked away from helping private sellers and started working with institutions, leasing companies, rental companies, uh, and basically the wholesale auction and made that inventory, which is normally the inventory that dealers buy in order to recondition themselves. We made that inventory available to consumers. And so overnight we went from say 150 cars in inventory to 200,000 cars in inventory. And then the problems we had to solve were very different ones. We didn't have to negotiate with a seller. Instead, we needed to build software that at scale describes these vehicles very successfully. Okay. So we have 200,000 cars. You can't know every single one of them. Uh, based on that model that then started growing really fast, we, we raised $8 million in venture funding. Wow. Grew the business to, yeah, it happened quickly then. Uh, we grew the business to around 150, 160 car sales per month, which that doesn't sound like a big number, but for an independent dealership is relatively big. Yep. That's the equivalent of a little more, little north of $3 million in revenue per month. Wow. Uh, but then notice that in order to build a really big business, like a billion dollar company, you actually need a lot of physical infrastructure. You need a lot of the reconditioning centers. You need, you need a lot of personnel. And so what, what our investors signed up for was for us to use the money to invest in servers and software engineers. But what we ended up doing is we used the money to invest into like warehouses and, and used car factories. And so it, it wasn't a good fit at that time. And we were honest to ourselves and said, well, that, that's actually not the business we want to build. And so instead of continuing to sell cars, we started talking to our quote unquote competitors and other disruptors in the space uh, and quickly became close friends with, with the executives at Carvana. Because they, they realized that we had built the software and they were in process in the process of building it too. And thought, well, if we just buy these guys, the whole company, and bring the team on, we A, can move quicker, and B, have a talented team that can support us. Right. And so it didn't take us very long to agree on, on that path forward because it just made so much sense. And so instead of us raising more money, we ended up selling the business and to some extent the team and ourselves to Carvana. Right. Now I want to, I want to go, go back a little bit in terms of how you approach this. And I want to talk about your, your ability to raise funding because as, as people that are looking to, to get into a space or grow their business, et cetera, how did you and Chris approach securing? Let's, let's start baby steps. The, the first round of funding, how was that meeting? How was the pitch for that? And how did you know that it was the right time to approach uh, that particular crop of investors to secure financing? Yeah. So I'll walk through that in a millisecond. One thing worth mentioning is Silicon Valley is all about venture capital and 
these high growth tech startups. So a lot of what I'm going to tell you will sound crazy and is likely not applicable for brick and mortar businesses. Um, and so what ended up happening was Chris and I were selling cars. Chris had signed that private equity offer, right? He actually had a job waiting for him. I I hadn't figured out what to do with my life. And so I asked one of our professors and, and friends and mentors to, to grab a beer with me so I can ask him a few questions and for advice. We sat down. I told him about how we're selling our classmates' cars. And I didn't notice how, how quickly time flew by. He said, okay, an hour's over. I need to leave. I think you already made your decision. You should not look for a job. I think you should be selling cars. <laughs> and if you want to make this a company, I'd love to invest $50,000. Wow. And so I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, I, I love supporting students. I think you two are onto something. Clearly, it's a long way to go. and The business model might change. But you're hands-on. You've demonstrated that you understand that you're somewhat authentic to the space because already, you've already sold so many cars. So I would love to support you guys. Wow. And then I called Chris and told him, hey, we have a huge problem. We, uh, Andy Rackler, that's the, the, the mentor I was talking about, uh, very, very well-known figure in Silicon Valley. He wants to invest in our company that doesn't exist quite yet. And Chris is like, okay, great. So let's start a company. <laughs> I, I like how, how, how the conversation goes from, yeah, it's a company we don't have to. Yeah, let's get that started. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, that's tremendous. Is, um, these how, things happen here sometimes. How'd that feel? Like to hear somebody say that they believed in your idea so much they wanted to put fifty thousand dollars in your hand. Well, the, I mean, the craziest the craziest thing was it wasn't even an idea. Like it's not like it was on my mind as a new business. It was just something we, we right. did. <laughs> a hobby. Like not a hobby, but just a, a side hustle. Yeah, at best. <laughs> and uh and so I was surprised and I like it took me a long time. And now with hindsight, obviously, a lot of things make much more sense. But uh, I, I wasn't sure whether this is how, how big companies are started, because if you if you hear other people's stories, they're they're being romanticized so much. It always sounds like I went to my dorm room, I wrote some software, and then exploded, and yep. it went viral, and then this was a billion-dollar company. Yep, That's just not true. What I learned is in order to start a company, you just need to get started with something. Everything will change anyway, and so the fact that we had got, had got had gotten started with something was so valuable already. That's already a lot more than a lot of other founders do who, who create a presentation or, or mock up a few designs. Like the fact that we had already sold cars, generated revenue, went a very long way for a number of the investors we talked to. Right, because they knew that you were you already had skin in the game, so it, it made exactly. it it made it easier. And we had learned something. And it made it easier for them. Uh, you know, a phrase I hear a lot is invest in the jockey, not in the horse. So they knew that you exactly, and you yeah. and Chris were proven. Uh, proven is a very positive word, given our ignorance at the time. But uh, <laughs> at least we, we proved that we were hustlers. Let's put it that way. There you go. That works. And, and the reason I wanted to go back and talk a little bit about that story is because as as you were saying, you know, Silicon Valley, the venture capitalist, uh, the venture capital space, many people, to your point, and I love what you said, romanticize how to start a business. And a lot of the stuff that's really about starting a business is just taking your strengths and playing off of them here. Here in, in the case of you and Chris, you took this side hustle, like you said, and monetized it and turned it into something that people not only believed in, but that had proven results that made it easier for you to grow that business. And so much so that 
like like you said, uh, Carvana came and was willing to not only bring in your technology and you and Chris, but leverage that as a way to grow their own platform. I mean, that's massive. Yeah. You make it sound very flattering. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, you know what it is? Um, I yeah. try to... No, that's how it was. I want to I want to paint it in a in a way that obviously there's always going to be struggles there's going to be hardships but I think that the biggest the biggest takeaway from our conversation so far is that you guys you guys had no quit because you and and Chris didn't want to just follow along with everybody else that gets their MBA and just sits in a cubicle all day all day I think that that's the a very huge takeaway I want listeners to get from this you guys didn't want to do that, even though that's kind of where the narrative would take you when you're when you're going to business school. It's like, oh, you get out, maybe you start a business, maybe you consult. But a lot of people don't take the same level of control of their destiny like you and Chris did in this case. That's true. That's true. That's especially true traditionally. We had one lecture, and I remember that as if it was yesterday. I think it must have been the last or second to last lecture who said the following. He, he's an entrepreneur himself, went to business school himself. He said, you guys need to understand one thing. The second you graduated from, or you will graduate, you have this incredible safety net. And you can fall very deep. You can have almost every job you want. They're all very well paying. You're very ambitious, so you obviously want to be paid a lot and, and have a strong career and a good career. But this is your safety net. This needs to be your plan B. Your plan A needs to be something that's that's crazy. Right. Where you run a big risk, where the upside is incredible, and where you can have major massive impact on the world. And so it's almost your obligation to take a step back, be a little less selfish. Don't think about your immediate compensation, but think about all the things you could do that other people can't do because they, they just then have can't have that same level of confidence in their ability to find a job. Right. And so that resonated a lot with me. That that just meant I, I don't want to, I shouldn't go, and I really didn't want to go to a company that was paying a lot, which there fortunately are a lot of options right after graduation. But instead, I went and sold cars. And like we were, I'm sure Chris and I were the, were the two graduates who paid themselves the lowest salary, close to zero, uh, along with all the other founders. Uh, but instead, we were trying to build something that would be impactful. Now, going going to Carvana, which which you sold the company to Carvana in 2017. How did that How did that come about? I know you said you had had some conversations informally, but. How was the how was the day of that pitch when Carvana was like, "Hey, we'd like to acquire your company and your services." Describe yeah. that day for me. But that's the next thing that's being romanticized. These things don't. I mean, in my life, they haven't happened like that. The, the way you do these things is, and this is it wasn't my strategy back then, but looking back, this is what happened. You ask for advice. You ask for, "Hey, let's compare notes." Uh, same with investors. Every time we ask uh, lecturers, a professor, hey, can I pick your brain? I want to learn something. We told them what we were doing. And then the professor said, hey, I'm really interested in this. Would you take my money? The same happened with Carvana because we reached out to, believe it or not, one of our classmates. She uh, she had been working for Carvana at the time in partnerships. And I'd been friends with her from school. So I reached out to her and told her, hey, we're doing this and we're doing that. Would it make sense for us to be friendly and compare notes? And she's like, sure, that's a great idea. So we hopped on a phone call, told them what we were building. They, I think they put two and two together really quickly. Um, for me, this was more of a conversation around, 
is there something that's valuable? Is it something that we're good at that, that Carvana could get better at if we joined? Uh, and so the conversation of comparing notes and being really open and vulnerable and, and telling the other person and company what we're struggling with, but what we think we're good at, led to more and more conversations and all of us realizing that, A, we like each other a lot. We got along really well, like personally, and that's actually the most important thing. Right. And secondly, we had built something that would be complementary and would add value. And so then from then on, it was just a matter of determining something, some terms that would make sense for our investors, our team and ourselves. Now, when when the acquisition came about and you were, you essentially had to take care of the uh, people that had invested initially, how, do, how did that conversation go about? Because uh, I'm assuming when people invest they tell you, hey, we're investing in you. Here's kind of a of a roundabout expectation that we have. Do you feel that when the Carvana acquisition came about that those people would have been concerned that you guys were just giving a project away? That they, they going back to what I said before, they invested in you and Chris, and here you were giving giving that to a to a bit to a competitor, so to speak. Yeah, well couple of thoughts. A, obviously they got some money for it. Mm-hmm. Um, Which softens the blow. Get, <laughs> that's all some of it. it. The goal was to build like a billion dollar company, go public, just like Carvana ended up doing. Um, we we were just hyper intellectually honest around the strength of what we'd built and the weaknesses. Right. And our company just would have never become Carvana. That's impossible. And so the, the best thing we could have done at the time was to figure out what's most valuable. And so, interestingly, we started and spent four years in building a car company, an operating business, a car company. What we ended up selling was a software company. Mm. Which which was a, a huge pivot, especially coming from your, your origin story where you were saying you were selling classmates cars and you realize that yep you realize that that's why i'm saying the the most important thing in in a startup and in business is you just need to get started like you you know nothing today it's so easy to talk yourself out of doing something absolutely Uh, it's much harder to just get started and then pivot and pivot and pivot and iterate until you learn something that's unique and so we're taking the same mindset this time. We have a conviction. We know what what our values are. We know what's important to us. You know the level. We know the level of impact we want to have. But we don't know for sure whether our next business, as we have it in our minds today, is going to turn out the way we have it in our minds today. We will get started. We will learn something. We'll make a lot of mistakes. These mistakes just must be costly. So we we need to be open minded, not do the same mistakes again. And but be be like being able to to learn and savor surprises. And then we'll, we'll stumble into something that works. What was the scariest part of this journey for you personally, as, as you were kind of discovering yourself? Cause like you said, when, when you spoke to your professor and you had no plan and he said, Hey, you're going to go into this and fate kind of made that yeah. decision for you. What were, what were some of the fears you had? What, what kept you up at night de- de- dealing with all of this? Cause this is a huge undertaking. <laughs> many things um so every founder is kept up at night every day <laughs> i i want to make sure that it doesn't sound like i'm the only one no no, no of course it's just true for everyone the let's see in the beginning i didn't believe this like i had these multiple phases in the beginning i didn't think this was going to be a business like i felt i was just selling a bunch of cars 
I just couldn't believe that big companies have started that way. Like now, now obviously I think very differently because I've, I've gone through it once and I have a lot of entrepreneur and founder friends who will tell one story to the media and press, but who tell the truth to me and tell me, no, no, no. I, I was like, I don't know, working in, in a sandwich shop and watched people, <laughs> how they clock in and clock out and felt like these, these little merchants need software so they can track their hours. And so I built that. So uh, most of the entrepreneurial study is, uh, stories start like that. Nobody tells them, though, because like what people want to hear is how this was an overnight success. In yeah. our case, it was an overnight success seven years in the making. Well, I'm, I'm glad you said that. And, and I want to I wanna go a little deeper into that because I think the scariest thing that a lot of people they don't understand is that it's, it's a, you know, the iceberg is very deep, even though it's big on the surface of the water, it goes very deep under the water. And in this case, like, like you said, the, you, you and Chris wanted to solve a problem. And I think that that should be the foundation for any business. What problem can you solve that people just don't want to deal with? And you and you and Chris made it very, very simple. It's like, Hey, you don't want to sell your car. We'll sell it for you. And I, I'm I'm simplifying it only because in when you hear it, you're like, "What do you mean? Who doesn't want to sell their car and and deal with that experience?" And the answer is a lot more people than you think don't want to deal with that. That's <laughs> true. That's true. That's also the other thing you basically said implicitly, and I think it's important. Great businesses are very easy to to describe. Right. Like uh, there's a lot of things you can do which are really complicated and require a lot of stars to align and mostly they don't. The best businesses are very easy and straightforward to explain and it takes a lot of time to get to that place. Like you, you always overcomplicate complicate things. You learn and then and once you understand the nuances and you, you hit what, what we call product market fit. Product market fit means you have a product that people really want and they're they're pulling out of your hands. Once you get there, you realize, oh, what I built makes total sense, and I should have had that idea a long time ago. I can't believe it took me so long. <laughs> no, it's it's very scary. And the thing about it is, in addition to, uh, you know, you, you've been involved in all these companies also, but you've also kind of paid it forward by becoming an investor yourself. Yeah. So, the... Obviously, you invest in order to get yield a return on your money. But my, my investing is slightly different because, like, I just want to do what people did to me. Right. They, like, Andy got got us started. He, he put put us in a career path that we didn't even think, I didn't even know it existed for us. And so that's what I'm trying to do with my friends, too. All my, like, my investment thesis is get in early to help the, help the entrepreneur get traction because you need momentum to raise money. Um, and so I want to be that guy, uh, and then only friends because I know them really well. And and like going in, this is what what we told all our investors, like all the angel investors, expect this money to be gone, write it off, and if it comes back, and if it's more, then we should all celebrate. And so this is how I'm looking at it: these angel investments, early stage. I'm primarily helping my friends, and if I get a financial return, that'd be incredible. Right. Now, how how did you feel? telling an investor that because again an investor is looking for a return and you're like hey don't expect to get a return now were you doing that because you kind of wanted to you wanted to downplay it, depends, it in case no it depends on who you talk to okay if you talk to institutional investors 
who are in the business of investing, they know what they're doing. Okay. They know the odds of something working out. And so there you just have an honest conversation about here's the business I want to build. This is how big it can become. Here are the risks, here are the opportunities. And then you just jointly with the investor together, analyze, okay, so what's the path to building a big business? Um, the, the investors I was referring to are individuals, private individuals who get really excited because a big fund is going to invest. They take that as a signal of, oh, this fund invested in all these other incredible companies. Maybe it's a sign that this one will succeed too. And then some people, none of my friends, luckily, because they understand what they're doing, but I wanted to be sure that people don't overstretch. They don't invest money that if they lost it, it would be a problem. Right. And I just wanted to be crystal clear that I I don't want to, I will have so many sleepless nights already because building a business is hard. I didn't want to have even more stress because I was potentially risking losing some of my friend's money. I think that's why it was really important for, for me to at least have had that conversation and only or primarily with the angel investors, individuals who meant a lot to me. I, I think that is a that is a very classy approach and I applaud that because a lot of times people they want to start a business and they and you know the first thing they say is hey ask your friends ask your family etc and to do that number 1 you have to you have to be mentally prepared for that and also whenever it's conversations about money they are incredibly difficult i think it's a, it's a scary concept for many people and to see you going out there and investing and and putting money to to help friends fulfill their dreams and and start their businesses is is a noble endeavor and where i wanted to take that i wanted to take that is the fact that what what are some criteria you look at when you're vetting a business personally that you when you want to invest uh, when when i want to invest i think that's why i wouldn't recommend you follow my investment <laughs> um, I, number one rule needs to be good friends i appreciate and i understand i want I want good friends. That also means they're somewhat similar to me. So they like hustling. They roll up their sleeves. They do it because of grander motivations than just making money. So mm -hmm. all the companies I invested in, if you, if you listen to the founders talk, it's inspirational because like they will not tell you, oh, I want this to be a billion dollar company. They'll tell you, I want to, most of these investments happen to be in Latin America. Also, I, I want to change. Like I want to empower um, people who are living like the minimum wage to make more money and uh, deliver food. And so uh, these friends of mine build a food delivery business and that felt like a really good mission to invest in. Um, if I invest a little bit in a later stage, that's when, when there actually is a company. The, the number one thing that really matters is growth. Um, growth, while there is a path to making money, <laughs> um, growth alone doesn't, doesn't tough it. Um, but most of my investments is that it's just based on friends who I want to help get going. Now you mentioned investing and and doing a lot in Latin America. Do you feel that internationally there's other areas that 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 have the potential to be the next Silicon Valley? I'm asking personally, already, based on feeling. Yeah, I think that that's happened already. So if you, China is very far away, but China has built some incredibly big companies. Uh, we don't notice very much because the Chinese market is so big that most of these companies are focused in China. But look at TikTok, for example. Oh, yeah. TikTok is like, a massive a example. There's a lot of very big businesses that, that don't come out of Silicon Valley. 
I think what we see happening more and more is that Silicon Valley investors have the courage to invest outside of Silicon Valley. Um, that trend has been there before the pandemic started. So there's a bunch of businesses in other countries, often um, repeat founders who attract capital from Silicon Valley, who build businesses that worked in the U.S. and, and do so very successfully. And now through the pandemic, one thing that has happened, investors in Silicon Valley always really liked the idea of having the teams and the founders somewhere nearby, be it on the peninsula here in, in the Bay Area or in San Francisco. Right. So they could go to board meetings in person. Uh, that meant hiring your team here because a lot of really talented software engineers, for example, are here. That has changed a lot. Now what, what investors, in, at least from the recent conversations I've had, support very much is, well, have a decentralized team. Don't force your team to be in the Bay Area where the cost of living is incredibly high. Let them be wherever they are and wherever, wherever they want to be. Uh, it's a win-win because people can live out in outdoorsy areas um, near their families where cost of living is much lower and you can tap into a much broader, broader talent pool. And so what, what we're seeing is that Silicon Valley is being somewhat decentralized. The capital is still here, although there is a lot of capital in New York as well and Austin too. Right. But the, the companies are more distributed and more de- decentralized than they've ever been. And I think that's a really exciting trend. I, I, I actually want to add on to that. I mean, Twitter was massive when they were like, hey, we're going to go remote or people working from home. And it's funny because a lot of people that worked that actually moved to uh, San Francisco. And like you said, the high cost of living, they were like, well, I guess I'm moving back to Nebraska or I guess I'm moving here. Or I'm moving there. And it was very refreshing to see because at the end of the day, um, this pandemic, while it's been terrible, it's also exposed a lot of inefficiencies in the systems that many companies had. And like you said, a decentralized team now isn't such a terrible thing, especially with the current climate. Yeah, no, it's actually great. And I think it's great, not because it's better for companies where they can hire everywhere else and spend less money. I think it's great because people overall are happier. Yep. They're, they're not locked into small apartments in a very expensive city that gets more and more expensive. Instead, they're in, like, they can afford a house in a suburban area near their families, raise a family, and the money they earn goes so much so much further. So I think it's a win-win. I think the people who, who struggle struggle short-term is, is like, are like real estate investors in San Francisco because they were buying into this never-ending increases in, in, in prices. So I'm afraid they're struggling a little bit. I, I hope they recover quickly. But yeah, for the individuals and then I think society, it's a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you, I'm glad you actually bring that up because, I mean, here in New York, it's a lot of that, too. You have so many offices, so many large uh, spaces in Wall Street and in downtown in Manhattan. And then people are like hesitant about taking public transportation, et cetera. And what's happening is more and more people are embracing living outside of the of the boroughs here in New York City because of that. So it's interesting you bring that up because it's a very similar situation here in New York for that exact reason. It's, it's becoming more widely accepted because there's so much, there's so many other ways that people can conduct business. Correct. Yeah, I agree. Very similar. Now I want to move into one other aspect of, of your journey. You've, you've done so much already investing into 
other companies, starting your own, etc. I want to talk about uh, with Clutch and get into that a little bit because that's that this this venture looks to change the game in the automotive finance industry, and I want to break that down and understand where you're going with this brand and what you hope to achieve. Yeah. So that, that, that business was born out of two insights that we had over the last seven years, things that I would have not known had I not been in the car space. Number one, when we were selling cars ourselves, we noticed this one awkward behavior. Customers haggled forever on the price of the car. Yep and didn't trust us and came out with so many questions and wanted mechanics to inspect these cars. So definitely didn't trust us. And that's true for every car dealer on the car. Once they were over the hurdle of trusting us on the car and were fell in love with the vehicle, then we had conversations around how to pay for it. And all of a sudden they fully trusted us as a dealer and getting them a great loan. And so that didn't make any sense to us. For us, it created a weird tension because we look at the screen and see, oh, there's 10 loans available for this customer. One offers a low interest rate, but another one offers a really high referral rate, a referral fee to us as a dealership. Which one should I give the customer? And so while we, while we try to do the right thing and give the customer the loan with the lowest rate, we notice that this tension exists and long term, it will just result into what happens day to day in normal use car dealerships. Um, Customers don't get the best loan that has the lowest uh, interest rate. They get the loan that pays the dealership the highest referral fee. Oh, geez. And so the second you drive off the lot, you could already refinance your car loan and save money. That's insight number one. Insight number two is that's especially true for people with a credit score below, say, 700. If you make your payments, your credit score moves a lot very quickly. Yep. And so if you, if you had like challenge credit, let's say your credit score was 600 when you bought the car, your rate was 15%. Online rates can be as high as 29%. So it's crazy what, what people sometimes have to pay depending on their credit. Let's assume you have 600 credit, your rate is 15%. You make your 6, 12, 18 payments. Your credit score will move from 600 much closer to 700. Yes. And once that happens, you would qualify for a much lower rate. That means if you were to buy a car at that point in time, your rate would be much closer to 10, 9, or 8%. Maybe lower. 700 could be 6 or 5%. And, and you're still stuck in the loan that you had from the beginning that, that costs you 50% a month. Nobody refinances auto loans. Nobody's not quite true, but very few people refinance auto loans. Yet that's you could save thousands of dollars. And so that's why we decided to build a digital platform to help customers refinance auto loans from the comfort of their home. Now, and, and it's funny because my, my wife, uh, leases now, and I remember previously she was financing a, a vehicle and it, you bring up a very good point when it comes time to show that customer, the screen, when it comes to loan offerings, there's always that depending on the dealership, there's always that, that little bit of an unscrupulous practice that could come come into play. Like you said, who's going to give the bigger referral? I mean, the, the only reason why we used to benefit, not benefit, but we used to not get taken advantage of was because I would pull the card based on my, my employment on, on where I worked. And I'd say, listen, don't come and hit us with this because I know this and this and this. And you bring up a very valid point. It's a very scary thing. And a lot of people, they just get into that endless cycle of 
financing, paying their car note and not doing their research, realizing that they could probably save hundreds of dollars or thousands over the course of their loan if they just went that extra mile and refinanced. Exactly. To put things into perspective, last year, in 2019, almost 50% of the mortgages, of the funded mortgage applications were refinancing. Yep. And that's because the interest rate dropped. Absolutely. By like half percent or so. Meanwhile, less than 5% of the funded auto loan applications were refinancing. And the, the savings, like the, the interest rate difference for a car loan after you make your payments is more like 5 or 6 or 7% percentage point you can take off versus a mortgage where the interest rate maybe may drop for like half for half a percent or by half a percent so the opportunities to save money on a car are very high people just people just don't do it and the people who know you can do it find that it's really inconvenient because you have to go to the branches you have to sign paperwork with real ink yep on dmv forms and so that's what we're trying to change now based on based on this and and this approach do you feel that with the success of Carvana, you know, your your current endeavor with with Clutch, do you feel that as we move towards just adjusting with the current climate that these are the these are the ways and the things that people should be looking towards uh services like you said that just save you the headaches, save you having to walk in and sign forms and more importantly be overwhelmed with information. As I went through the with Clutch site, I really respected the fact that you broke down every facet, every problem that customers run into. And more importantly, you answered a lot of questions. Yeah, so let's 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 address Carvana first because I think that's a really interesting story. Like a year ago, Carvana was already very, very big and growing incredibly fast. And yet you would find a lot of people out there who would tell you buying a used car online, sight unseen is crazy. Who yes. does that? Yes. Fast forward, the pandemic happens. Now, if you talk to people in the street, they'll tell you test driving a car, going to a dealership and test driving a car is crazy. So the times have changed. Like there was a huge inflection point, um, and people now think that what used to be crazy isn't crazy anymore. Does that make sense? No, I, it, it totally does. I mean, my like my wife and I, we when we had my daughter, we needed a, a, a her lease was up. And we went to do get a new vehicle and it was just a very draining, draining experience because you get there, you got to pick a car. They got to find you one to test drive. You, you and I both know that they conveniently keep you there as long as humanly possible. And by the time you get to the stage of signing papers, you're just so exhausted that you want it to be over and done with. Yeah. And, and the worst part is still to come. <laughs> yep. Because then when you get into talking to the loan officer and negotiating rates, et cetera, you're, you're at that point, you're so beaten up to, to like what you said, you just want it you just want to go forward and you sign with you what you sign. As long as it's somewhat in line to what you're willing to pay, you don't even want to ask too many questions. Yeah. Yeah. So that's retail car retail. The refinancing model that we're talking about and looking to right now, the dynamics are slightly different. Uh, the reason why I think this is a really interesting opportunity is because it helps people. There's people right now who, who need cash because they lost their jobs and right. they're running out of the stimulus checks. And so people will have to look for creative ways to get some cash. And one really creative way and untapped 
is to tap into the equity of your car. Some people have made payments. They, the car is worth more than they owe. So refinancing, just like you would do with a, with a mortgage, your car is a really interesting way to get access to some extra cash or save on a monthly basis. So I think it's really particularly interesting for today, uh, number one. And then there will be a second wave in, I'd argue, 18 to 24 months from now, where the people who lost their job today, who missed a credit card payment or two, hence decreased in credit score, then bought a car, will then have a job again, will have made payments, will have improved their credit, and should then refinance. And so I, I foresee these two waves, one now, that's immediate, and one in two years or so from now. Yeah, I think I think that that's a, a an interesting uh, uh, shift in the pendulum, so to speak, because what's happening now is there is certainty in some spaces, but a lot of uncertainty in others. Like right now, with so. with exactly like you said, stimulus, uh, unemployment benefits, all of that is kind of up in the air right now. And this being an election year, it's going to be even more up in the air before things get back to normal somewhat uh in the new year but in the interim people like you said they're trying to find ways to save money find ways to cut costs and they may not even know to your point and i want the listeners to know that you can refinance you can refinance your auto loan you can get a lower rate you can save some extra money it it is possible yep i agree truly believe so now i think that with clutch you're moving fully online with this platform where what is your what is your end game what would you like um the message to be for people when they come to the site and are looking to refinance what do you what do you want to lead with or at least what message do you want to impart here so that they can check out uh with clutch so the the the, the main the main thing i want to get across is like our main motivation behind what we're doing the when I moved to the U.S., I didn't have any credit. Like, I needed to build credit. It took me a long time. Um, I, I realized how disadvantaged you are if you have bad credit score or a thin file in my case. And so what I want to do is I really particularly want to help people get out of bad credit and help, help, help accelerate the process of getting into good credit. Because ultimately, if, if you don't have access to capital, or if your capital is incredibly costly and you're forced to make these interest payments on your expensive car, it's very, very, very difficult to get out of uh, debt and, and build wealth. And so the, the main driver behind what we're doing is to, to help people get out of debt, um, address or do our part at least to some extent, address income inequality. And therefore, I'm, I'm hopeful that as many people as possible reach out um, either through the website or directly through me, to me through LinkedIn, for example, so I can help. I will I will definitely make sure to include links for uh obviously people to connect with you on LinkedIn, but also with clutch as well. Uh, in the current climate that we're in, uh, every, every penny saved is a penny earned. And I think that, um, what you guys are doing is definitely innovative and is very, very timely. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, we want to move into the the next phase of uh, of our show, which is what we call the hot seat. It's a series of rapid fire questions. Uh, some business related, okay. some personal, um, you know, just to share some different insights uh, about you as a person and as a, as an entrepreneur. Um, Let's do it. All right. So when you start your day, what's the first thing you do? Do you open your phone, check your email, or do you take a few minutes, have coffee? What, what, what I 
try to force myself to do is get up and go for a run. Nice. So I'm, I'm trying to, uh, for three or four days a week, I'm trying to get up and go for a run before I check my emails or anything. Excellent. And is this a practice that you've been doing for a while or is this something that now with the current state of things you have embraced? I started, that's a good question. So I started going for my morning runs three and a half years ago. Okay. That was towards the end of our previous company when things just became incredibly stressful. And I noticed that I have feel a little anxiety and I didn't feel like I was at the top of my game and, and I was worried and it's just incredibly stressful when, when you sell the company and you have to deal with all these stakeholders. And what I found, and this was serendipitous, is that if I run, even if I run really slowly, if I just get the blood circulating in my body, uh, I don't feel this level of anxiety and I make better decisions and I'm much calmer. And so it actually reminded me a lot of, of my time playing golf where where became really good at being really calm and so that's how i got into it and i've just maintained that that practice excellent um that that's a that's a great way to break it down especially when you were saying that you were using it to to combat anxiety i think a lot of people don't realize that sometimes like you said going for a run going outside just sitting outside getting some sunlight uh, will do wonders before you kind of tackle the rigors of the day what I've found is the trick is to run so slowly <laughs> that it's not exhausting. Otherwise, you just get upset that you're feeling exhausted. And some, like the first 20-minute runs that I did were slowly and felt like barely faster than walking. And it, 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 wasn't, it didn't bother me. Otherwise, I always hated going for runs because I thought it was so boring. Do you track your runs? No, there's like there's this loop that I run. It's three point three miles. If I'm good, I can do it in twenty five minutes. Okay, um, but I don't I don't particularly track it. Okay, very cool. Do you use uh, an Android or an iOS uh, device? I have an iPhone. All right. Uh, always been team iPhone or? <laughs> I've I've broken. <laughs> like 10 oh man i'm the I'm the best customer of their insurance products i've had an iphone ever since i don't know when did i move in 2011 probably 09 or so and then then once you're stuck i mean this is a good company because you get stuck on these products never changed yeah, it's it, it's crazy how that works. You get into the ecosystem and then you say, you know, I got this iPhone. Eh, maybe let me get these AirPods. Oh, let me get this Apple Watch. And before you know it, you have almost every Apple device in your house. All these 80% margin products. No wonder, <laughs> no wonder Apple, I think at the point in time, again, is the most valuable company in the world. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm sure it's going to be crazy when they do the stock split at the end of... Uh, at the end of August, <laughs> a lot of people are going to buy a lot more stuff. afford it. Yeah. <laughs> um, what are three mobile apps you can't live without? Well, I'm actually not, not that active on apps. I obviously check my email. I, that's the normal app. Nothing special. I love and heavily use WhatsApp. WhatsApp is basically the messenger that allows it to message internationally. And so, my family's on WhatsApp. And oh, okay. Internationally, they're all live in Germany, and a lot of my friends in South America and worldwide. It's just the most convenient way to communicate. And I don't like social media a lot. I, I don't like exposing myself or I don't know publishing photos, but I do like interacting with individuals directly through WhatsApp. So I'm using that a lot. 
And then the third one, actually, LinkedIn. LinkedIn has been has become more and more valuable for me because I feel like I, I've, I've I've tapped into a network of people who post interesting things and some learning, and they're not posting TikTok videos of themselves, but actually interesting <laughs> stuff. And so I would argue my emails, my WhatsApp, my LinkedIn. You you know it's it's interesting because LinkedIn and uh, it, I'm glad you mentioned it. Uh, LinkedIn obviously is one way that we connected, and I've realized as uh, during the tenure of, of this particular podcast, LinkedIn has led me to, um, I want to say at least, uh, 50% of, of the guests that we've had for this podcast, just because there's, there's more value in the stories that you share, especially if it's, uh, the entrepreneurial endeavors, because I think LinkedIn just resonates very well with that. And to your point, you don't have that over the the distractions of, oh, here's my sandwich. Oh, here's my hamburger. Oh, I took this quiz. Yeah. Like, I definitely feel I was very apprehensive to LinkedIn maybe a year or two ago just because I was still working at my current employer and I didn't want to share a lot of like my projects because I kind of feel that, you know, all eyes are on you, especially if you connect with with colleagues. So I, I, I didn't want that to be a thing where people are like, oh, you weren't working on uh, on this because you're too busy working on X. But <laughs> but but now it's 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 more so I love sharing to your point, just sharing uh, the shows that we do, some of the content I create. And I agree. LinkedIn is is definitely the move, especially this year. And with the current employment climate, especially you need to be out there and you need to be present. And that's a great platform to do it. Yeah, I agree. When you run, do you listen to music? Yeah, mostly Latin American music. Nice. <laughs> the same songs over and over and over again. <laughs> do you have a Spotify playlist or just your own your own curated music? My my own my own list that I only only I look I listen to, and it's the same list that I've been listening to for <laughs> like three years. Nice. Don't uh, don't judge me by it. <laughs> nope, it's all good. What's your favorite piece of tech besides your phone or your computer? Favorite piece of tech. Favorite T piece of tech. Uh, we have a my roommate. I live with two roommates. Very very good friend of mine. My one roommate. She has a a, a piano, like a keyboard, okay. in the living room. And so I catch myself sitting down and play songs. I used to play piano when I was a kid. And so sometimes when I find a little bit of time, I need to like just procrastinate. Sometimes procrastinating is great. Yep. Uh, when I find these moments, I sit down and play play the keyboard. That's pretty cool. That's that is uh, one of the first the, one of the first times I've ever heard uh, of of a keyboard <laughs> as a as a favorite piece of tech. But it's good because I think that it it inspires creativity, especially if you previously played piano. I think it also helps you get more centered. That's true. That's what I feel. What was the last book you read? Oh, that's a good one. The last book I read was. It's called Never Split the Difference. Have you heard of it? No, I haven't, actually. It's really good. It's written by uh, this guy who used to be an FBI hostage hostage negotiator. Wow. And so he told the story how they developed their protocol, how to, how to negotiate with hostage takers, and, and, and then realized this is super applicable to business, too. And so I read it and I thought this was very, very helpful. I learned a lot and I actually started applying it when 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 I last negotiated my rent. 
So yeah, that's a good book. And it, even if you don't want to learn about negotiation, it's just really fun to to hear the story and learn. Awesome. Uh, what's an item that you've purchased recently that's less than a hundred dollars that's made your life either easier or more enjoyable? Purchased food. I haven't purchased a lot ever since quarantine because you can't leave the house. <laughs> this is um, true. I what did I buy? I didn't buy a lot. Oh, this must have been a piece of software that I bought. Um, I bought a few tools that that helped me being productive. Okay. Um, I, I forgot. I think one. Yeah, one tool I bought. This is so random. Uh, that's an event tracking tool. So now I'm, now I'm learning out here. This allows you to track where the users are coming from that go to the website and then it tracks where they're going, what they're looking at. You can watch sessions so you can prove the website. Excellent. That's something I bought recently. That was, I think, $89. Excellent. Now, do you feel that the, that, that, level of, uh, that level of information is vital in terms of structuring your, the, your website? So, yeah, I think you have two phases. Phase number one is that this goes very much in line with how businesses are built, are finding something that people want. And so you, you can't optimize your website to providing value. In fact, it's the opposite. The Andy Rector, the professor I mentioned who got us going with our startup, he was the first investor in eBay. And he said, we invested in eBay because of how well it worked despite how ugly the website was. And so what he said is like, this product is so great. The value is so high that it provides to users. Imagine what happens if you optimize it. Right. And so we're in the phase clearly where we need to find value and, and figure out what is the value proposition that resonates most. Um, and so instead of, instead of finding like little errors up to, of optimization, I'm trying to find where the website crashes on people because I've forgotten about an edge case or something like that. Right. That's, that's, it's very important. I think that learning how your, your ideal customer thinks allows you to create a better experience. Yeah. Customers will tell you what you, what, what they want you to build for them. Like that's why the most important thing is feedback. Feedback is a gift. Uh, growing up, what was your favorite toy or collectible that you had as a child? Wow. All these questions. These are really good questions. I, Oh, I had a remote-controlled car. I I loved playing around with remote-controlled cars. I wanted to be an engineer, like very much like my co-founder Chris. He, he was a mechanical engineer. Um, I didn't know him at the time, but that's something I wanted to pursue. And so I had this collection of remote-controlled cars, um, and I loved playing around with them and I tuned them, and I made them look really good. And so those were those were my gadgets that I used to play play hours with. Very cool. If I follow up with you a year from now and ask you where, where is with clutch at? What do you hope to reply with? I hope to reply to you telling you, Hey, there were a few convictions that we had about how to approach customers, how to find them, how to present this value proposition to them. They were not right, but fortunately customers told us, what they would use if we were to build it for them. And so we listened to the feedback, we prototyped, we put something in front of customers, we started getting a lot of traction. We say, started saving a number of people a lot of money on their car payments. And now we're, we're at a spot where we feel really, really comfortable and confident in what we've built and are ready to scale and, and put more fuel on the fire, if that makes sense. Excellent. All right. Uh, to wrap things up on the hot seat, 
where can people find and connect with you? Yeah, so you can either go to withclutch.com, withclutch.com, or if you just want to chat or get my feedback on something or hear me out or offer something to me, um, like a gift or something, just go to LinkedIn. That's the best way to contact me. Look for Nicholas Henriksen um, and or Carvana or something like that. And you'll yeah. find me. And if you want to connect and chat, I, I look forward to that. I would love to hear from you. Awesome. All right. The uh, last portion of our show, we like to call Reach One, Teach One. We like to give our listeners one piece of actionable advice based on our guest yeah. experiences to help them out. Uh, in your case, I want to put it out there, especially now that so many people are trying to start their own businesses in the midst of this pandemic. Uh, what's one piece yeah. of advice you'd give to an, an aspiring entrepreneur that's get, looking to jumpstart their business? Yeah. So there, there's this saying that I love, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And so that might sound counterintuitive, but it suggests is while a crisis is obviously a crisis for a lot of people and I wish it had never happened, like you also have to look at it from another angle and ask yourself, what are opportunities that are created thanks to this crisis? And so it is very, very obvious. We have a huge inflection point in technology. People are adapting on technologies. People People start using services that otherwise they wouldn't have used. People can work remotely thanks to technology. So now is a really good time to look into technologies and ask yourself, what is it that works today because of the way behaviors change that didn't work yesterday? That would be my word of encouragement. Awesome. I think that's a, that's a valuable piece of insight for anybody looking to uh, jumpstart their business. And I truly, truly appreciate it. Uh, Nicholas, you shared so much with us. I appreciate you taking the time to share the toys and tech of your trade. <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I had a good time. What a great conversation with Nick. As always, everything that was discussed in this episode will be in the show notes. As always, full disclosure, certain items may have affiliate links, which as always, if you click, will receive a small commission, which goes towards improving the show, improving the brand, and just giving all of you a better experience. So make sure to use those links. It helps us out. And more importantly, it costs you nothing. Now, as somebody who was in the automotive space for almost 19 years, it was amazing to connect with Nick for this interview. Number one, because he and I knew a lot of the same people, which was crazy considering that we had never met in any other space except for this podcast and it just shows how crazy the internet and just the world is that we had different career trajectories different paths but yet here we are chopping it up talking about disrupting the automotive industry uh making an impact uh sharing stories that hopefully will fire you up and inspire you to go out there take a risk take that idea that you're probably toying around with and really pull the trigger on it and execute. It's funny that with everything going on in the world, this is, I, I got to say, and it's not hokey or self-help. This is prime time. This is the time for you to test out that idea, to test out that theory, to take a gamble because at the end of the day, you know, we only got one life. So might as well go out there, make an impact, have a blast doing it. And Hey, if what you're, aspiring to build or put out there doesn't work hey it's not a failure it's a lesson and you can apply it to something else and hopefully 
you know, have more control of your destiny. Like I said, this is this is open season. This is the time to really double down if you're toying with an idea, as I said, or you want to get that project off the ground, or maybe you want to explore a career in streaming or podcasting or or YouTube creation or whatever the case may be. Execute. Pull the trigger on that idea. You'll be glad you did. There's so many creators out there that are getting their feet wet. Um, as somebody who's been checking out TikTok lately, you see so many people um, doing vinyl work, uh, different artists just doing amazing, amazing things and building not only a following, but just engaging with people who just aren't aware of their work. You'd be surprised how many people are, and I'm using TikTok in this case, are just out there creating that people are just blown away by their talent and no one knows who they are. And they're on this platform making it their own. And I'm not saying to go out there and start a TikTok, but just go out there, start something, do something, take a risk, experiment. Like I said, there's there's no such thing as failure, just lessons. And this week's guest definitely uh, taught me a few lessons as well. And I hope that all of you got value from it. Now, that said, if you're looking to get on to podcasting, start your podcasting journey, have some questions, need some help, by all means, feel free to email me, rich at rageworks.net. I'll try to help you out as best as I can. I'm not going to sell you a course or an ebook or anything. I was a beginner once. And if I can pay it forward and help you get on your podcasting journey or your content creation journey or launching a website, drop me a line. You know, I, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to be your personal Google and give you every bit of advice. You got to go out there and hunt for yourself. But got some questions, unsure about something, need some recommendations. Drop me a line. I'll gladly help you out as best as I can. On a separate note. If you want to share your story on a future episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade, shoot me an email, rich at rageworks.net, or hit me up on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, any of the places that you see Rageworks. I pretty much run almost all of the social accounts, so more than likely, I will be the one answering you. Uh, we also uh, take guest requests via LinkedIn. Rageworks has a page on LinkedIn, as do I. You can find me there. And... If you're on Podit or Matchmaker, which are two great services to connect podcasters with potential guests, we have a profile on there for Toys and Tech of the Trade. I have a profile there as a guest as well. So if you want to have me on a show, same thing. You can hit me up via those services. Last but not least, if you enjoyed this episode and anything else that we're doing, please take a moment, rate us on iTunes, Google Podcasts, the service that you're using. Every review helps. You'd be surprised how many PR people always ask about reviews, audience engagement, etc. So if you got two seconds, hit that star review. Or if you got an extra couple of minutes, write a written review. We would truly, truly appreciate it. We got lots in store coming into September with some amazing guests. Uh, some people have been asking if I'm going to do some sort of back to school guide. Um, I may do a one just for, uh, you know, toys and tech of the trade for back to school and working from home because so many parents are, you know, sending their children back to school or doing home based learning plus trying to, to juggle working from home. So if I can give you some tools, resources and stuff that will help you out, I will definitely do my best to do that. Of course, uh, an episode of that nature will probably be trickling out 
as some bonus content alongside our usual shows. So keep an eye out for that in the coming weeks. All right, folks, thank you guys for listening. Follow me on any social media platform of your choice. You can find Rageworks there as well. And again, thank you for taking the time to check out this episode of Toys and Tech of the Trade. I'm out of here. Peace. Toys and Tech of the Trade is part of the Rageworks Podcast Network, your source for rants about gaming, entertainment, and the works. Visit us at RageworksNetwork.com.